Um, I'm doing a wedding in a couple weeks. And so we, uh, we met with a couple um, last night, which was kind of fun because we, uh, uh, you know, this particular bride was super organized. So the, the planning part went really quick. She knew exactly what she wanted. It was pretty easy to work through that. Um, and then so we had time to talk. And so they they were like, uh, so how did you guys meet? Like, how long have you been married? You know, we've been married 31 years. And, and uh, they asked how we met. And so we, we told the story, which is always um, fun with someone who, who knows nothing about it, because uh, I had basically God had gotten a hold of my life in kind of a big and dramatic way for me and uh, kind of showed me how out of whack my priorities were. And so I uh, drove back to college Called my girlfriend, immediately broke up with her because that thing was really unhealthy and out of balance and, uh, and swore off women forever. Like, you know, Paul was single, I'm gonna be single, I'm done. Um, which lasted about two weeks. Um, and, uh, so I sat down with my roommate and I was like, dude, I, uh, um, I, uh, I don't think this is gonna work. <laughs> I was like, but I don't just wanna like date the, the, first chick that shows up. I want to be intentional. I want to, I want to uh, be careful this time. He's like, all right, what are you looking for? And so he got out a legal pad and, and I gave him the list. Like, and it was, it's, it's kind of creepy. It was like, like pretty soon you'll be able to just do that on Amazon, I'm sure. But this is before Amazon. So, so I was, uh, uh, so, you know, I was like, I want this, I want that, I want this. And it felt kind of weird to be like, uh, you know, these are all the things that are important to me. But he wrote it all down. And actually, Esther still has that piece of paper. It's kind of cool. Um, she kept it all 30 years, but 31 years. But um, but I got done. He goes, uh, I know the girl. I was like, shut up, dude. Come on. He was like, no, I seriously do. Uh, and he hadn't talked to Esther for two years. And so he calls her up. And uh, he had to call a friend to get her number. He gets her number. He calls her up and says, um, uh, uh, hey, this is, do you remember me? This is Chad. Like, he had to say, do you remember me? Like, that's how long it's been. Um, this is Chad. Do you remember me? And she's like, yeah, of course. And he's like, do you remember that big guy at that dance you went to with the other guy? You know, try to describe me. And she's like, yeah, I remember him. He's like, cool, here he is. And gives me the phone. I was like, what are you doing? He was like, I don't know. Talk to her. I don't know what I'm doing. And so, uh, so I start talking, which obviously isn't hard for me. We talked for like two hours. Um, back when long distance phone calls like cost money. You guys remember that? Um, if you're, if you're, uh, if you are, don't nod because it dates you and everybody knows. Um, so just, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, but, uh, yeah, so we, uh, we talked, we set up a date, um, at a friend's house in about a week and, and the ball was rolling. And even last night I was like, and then what was it? Like six months later we were married? She was, she goes four months. I was like, whoa. So, uh, yeah, even to me, I was like, seriously? And so, obviously, uh, the couple we were with last night, they'd been dating for 10 years. So, they were like, um, they were like four months. I was like, dude, I, you know, I was like, look at us. you got to lock that down as quick as you can. I mean, come on. Um, so, so, yeah, so we, uh, it's always fun to tell somebody who has no clue because they're like, whoa, what in the world? And now that I'm a dad with kids that age, I'm like, whoa, what in the world? That's so crazy. Who in the world lost their mind and let us do that? But, um, but at the time, we knew. I don't know how else to put it. And, you know, like now, 31 years later, I get to brag about it because, you know, because um, it, it worked, <laughs> you know, for a long time. It was crazy. But now, now we finally get to say, you know, it worked for us. But, um, we'll talk about that more at the end, but um, we're officially closing this year's uh, summer series. 
um, today, which means a couple things. Um, first, it means we're about to dive back into some of my favorite series um, of the year. If you're fairly new here, um, we kind of loosely follow the church calendar at OTCC, um, which basically means that we shape our year around the liturgical calendar that's been in use since about 350 A.D., it shows up in, in church history at about 350 A.D. Incidentally, the 12-month Gregorian calendar we use didn't go into effect until about 1532. So we're using like a brand new dating system compared to the liturgical calendar. Like So at Open Table, we kind of um, uh, use the liturgical calendar, the much older um, calendar. And the main reason is because uh, the American church has a tendency to shape itself around American holidays, which is pretty natural. Mother's Day, Father's Day, Memorial Day, Thanksgiving. Not that it's bad to celebrate those. We are Americans and we should celebrate those things. They're good things. Um, but the church is much bigger than America. Um, in fact, if you want some fun numbers, um, using the broadest definition of what a Christian is, um, the American church makes up about 8.5% of the global church. Um, so we're a tiny little group uh, of, and and so American conservative Christians make up about four percent of the global church. American liberal Christians make up about four percent of the global church. So whichever team you're on, you make up less than five percent of the whole church, um, which just means these epic battles of ideology and politics in America that we have a tendency to think um, are church-wide issues. Um, really, it's just the infighting of a really small. Um, group of the church um, that uh, 90 some percent of the church is not even aware that that fight exists or which um, political candidate represents each ideology. Most of the church doesn't even know their names. These people that we think are so epic to the church um, and the success of the church. So one of the reasons we use the church calendar rather than kind of the American secular Gregorian calendar is to tie us into that global church. Um, to, to do the things that the church is doing kind of worldwide, which is um, probably more meaningful to me than anybody else. I just think it's cool. It's like there's no real thing other than it's super cool to know that, that we're kind of celebrating some of the holidays along the way that, that so much of the church is doing. And practically what that means is that our preaching schedule follows kind of a predefined rhythm um, every year. Uh, we'll stretch um, the Christian holiday of All Saints Day, um, which is November 1st. We stretch that for a full month. We do uh, in November. Um, we do this series we call the Saint Series. Well, basically, we do what the author of Hebrews advises us to do, which is consider this cloud of witnesses around you. Um, in chapter uh, 11, the uh, the writer of Hebrews just goes through and lists people. Like, this person did that. This person stopped the mouths of lions. This person by faith did this. This person by faith did that. So we do that for a month. We go, you know, we pick four saints and we do one a week. We kind of learn about their lives and what's going on. And we basically say exactly what he said in chapter 15. This person did this and this person did that. Super excited about this year. We're doing all hymn writers this year. So we're going to, um, we're going to lean into, to some of the, the people who, who, um, kind of left their mark on the church by putting their faith into their art. Um, which is super cool, and and a lot of that art we still use in our worship today, which is is super super cool. So we're doing um, four hymn writers for for November this year, um, and uh, and 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 so that's what we do in November, and then immediately after that we're into Lent or uh, Advent, which is kind of the start of the Christian calendar year. So we'll celebrate Advent um, up until uh, Christmas. And then we have time for kind of a short, usually we do kind of a topical series. 
which then we're into Lent. And Lent takes us all the way to Easter, which settles us back into our next long summer series. So we just kind of follow this rhythm. That's kind of cool because you feel the same things come around and it's how you start to mark your calendar based on where we are. And, and it gives a rhythm to our worship um, and kind of pursuit of God. Um, which I think is cool. So the second thing, so the, so the second thing that it means um, is that the the space between our our uh, our the end of our summer series and the beginning of a kind of our liturgical year again um, is what we call our identity series. Here we kind of take a breath and we talk about us. Um, we talk about so next week we'll actually start that. We'll talk about what it means to be OTCC. Um, and this year we're kind of looking back at how the church. Um, started, but we're also looking ahead. We're going to dream a little bit this year and, 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 uh, talk about vision and, and, and what we think Open Table can be. Um, and so the third thing, uh, so the first thing is we're wrapping up. We're getting back into our liturgical year. Second thing is we're getting ready to go into our identity series. The third thing about, um, wrapping up the series means is that we're done studying Romans, which is definitely bittersweet. This has been a, um, I'm already excited about what we're talking about in September. But man, I've enjoyed this series. It's been really fun um, to do some uh, some core strength work, and uh, so it's, it's really hard to say goodbye to this series. Um, and the fourth thing is is that my stock um, is about to go way down. Um, what I mean by that is um, back Fourth of July weekend, Dale took me tubing, and uh, which he's done before, and he usually tries to kill me. I am not at all playing. He usually tries to kill me, and this year he was quoted while. While in that tension of like, he's holding on pretty well, but you know, I will win this battle. He goes, I don't want to hurt him because I want him to finish the Roman series. Um, so, so now that the Roman series is over, please pray for me. Um, cause I don't trust Dale at all. Um, but before we say goodbye to this series, I do want to look back at what we've done for the last 19 or so weeks. Um, if you're tracking kind of where we are in the book, you might be assuming we're going to do chapter 16 this morning, but that's not actually what we're doing. Um, for several reasons, primarily it's all about names and personal notes and not necessarily the gospel message that we've been uh, trying to extrapolate for the last 20 weeks or so. Um, what we're actually going to do is we're going to go all the way back to chapter 1. Um, and now that we kind of have a better understanding of what Paul actually covers in this book, um, we're going to look at maybe how... Uh, impactful a couple verses right there in chapter 1 are in light of, of everything we've talked about in this long study. So um, first, here's how Paul opens the letter. This letter is from Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ, chosen by God to be an apostle, sent out to preach the good news, the gospel. The, the, the Greek word is evangelion, the, the good news, the gospel. God promised this good news long ago through the prophets and the Holy Scriptures. The good news is about his son. Uh, in this earthly life, he was born into King David's family line. He was shown to be the Son of God when he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through Christ, God has given us the privilege and authority as apostles to tell Gentiles everywhere what God has done for them so that they will believe and obey him, bringing glory to his name. And you are included among those Gentiles who have been called to belong to Jesus Christ. So Paul opens by saying, point blank, I'm Paul and I've been sent to preach the gospel, period. Um, and the gospel is about Jesus Christ. He came in fulfillment of a bunch of Old Testament prophecies, especially the Davidic covenant, which we studied earlier this year. 
um, during Lent. Um, but Paul says his, his status is proven by the resurrection uh, as the Son of God. And, and then Paul kind of cuts to it with this statement. He is Jesus Christ our Lord. Through Christ God has given us the privilege and authority as apostles to tell Gentiles everywhere what God has done for them. What he has done. Right there in the introduction to the letter is that game-changing word. Done. Done. Paul doesn't say he's been given the privilege to uh, an authority to tell us how to live. He doesn't say that he was sent to tell us what our... Uh, what rating of movies Christians are allowed to watch and which ones they should avoid. He didn't tell us um, that he was called to tell us with certainty what we need to stop doing. Um, he didn't say that he was privileged and authorized to tell us who to vote for or which political platform points were worth choosing a candidate over. He didn't say any of those things. In fact, Paul didn't say anything at all about what we should do. Paul said, through Jesus Christ... God has given us the privilege and authority as apostles to tell Gentiles everywhere, that's us, what God has done, already done. The definition that had such a huge impact on our kids at camp was that the gospel, the evangelion, that that Greek word, is the good news about a battle that has already won. We talked at the baptism service about how when you lived in a walled city and, and an attacking army would come, your army would go out to meet them. And if you were back in the city, you just waited. You had no idea um, what the outcome would be. And riders would come every once in a while and they would give news of the battle. And they would call it the, the Evangelion was when that one rider would come back and tell, tell you that you had won the battle that the battle had already been won. By the time that rider got to you, the battle was over. It had already been won on your behalf. And so they used to say, blessed are the feet of him who comes bringing Evangelion, the, the one who comes bringing the good news, the one who comes and tells you all is well. Um, and so Paul says uh, that he's authorized as an apostle to give that, that good news that's already been done, um, the work that has already been done for us, the battle that's already been won. So right here at the beginning of the letter, Paul is saying his job isn't to tell us what to do, it's to tell us what's been done. Um, he's authorized to tell us what's been done on our behalf. After telling the Romans that he wants to visit them, Paul drops these two incredibly powerful verses. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Gentiles. This good news tells us about how God makes us right in his sight. This is accomplished from start to finish by faith. As the scripture says, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. So right here in verse 17, the good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight. This is accomplished from start to finish by faith. As the scripture says, it is through faith that the righteous person has life. This is where the proverbial rubber meets the proverbial road. uh, Because this is both sides of the coin in a single verse. The Evangelion, the Gospel, the good news tells us how God makes us right. Not how we get right, not how what we have to do to become right, um, but what He does to make us right. Um, the good news is about a battle that's already been won. The Gospel is not due, it's done. Um, but, in that same verse, Paul says that this good news about how God does all the work, Paul does tell us we play a part. 
There's something we need to do. John puts it this way. Jesus told them, this is the only work God wants from you. Believe in the one he has sent. We do have a part. And it's belief. So Paul said, this is the good news. This is accomplished from start to finish by faith. And that's the ball game. Faith. Or as John put it, believe on the one the Father has sent, which is obviously Jesus. And you might ask, aren't there certain ways Christians should live? Sure, definitely, absolutely. Because it's healthier and better for us if we do. And because there are fewer negative consequences if we live right. And because the more loving we are to others, um, uh, the, the easier it is for them to see the love of God as we serve. And honestly, some of the things... Uh, just don't fit into the life of a believer. It's not necessarily a, 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 this is verboten. It's more, why would you want to do that as, as a follower of Jesus Christ? Is it beneficial? Does it, does it serve? So yeah, there's, there's a way we should live. There are many reasons to live right, but earning God's favor is not one of them. There are tons of reasons to do the right thing. It's good for you. That's a big one. Which means a lot of God's commands are for you. We talked about this back in our Ten Commandments series. That, that weird Tenth Commandment that, that sneaks in. Don't covet. Every other commandment has a victim. It has a victim. And then God throws in, but don't covet. Who's the victim of covetousness? If, if you have something that I want and I just sit around wanting it, I don't hurt you at all. You're, you, you're, it doesn't hurt you at all for me to want your stuff. It hurts me. It's bad for my soul. It's really hard to live in gratitude when you're constantly wanting what someone else has. So right here in the Ten Commandments, we see the heart of God going, I'm giving you these commands because it's bad for you to covet. No, I know you're not going to hurt anybody. I know you're not going to, there's no damage being done. But there is damage being done to your soul. And that shines light on all of God's commands. That there's a protection in those for us. When he says don't worship other gods, it's because he knows nothing else can, can hold the weight of our worship. Try worshiping money. It'll let you down. Try worshiping you know, pleasure and satisfaction. The whole book of Ecclesiastes is about someone saying, I tried to worship all these other things and none of them worked. At the end of the book, he's like, what's left other than to worship God? Like That's the only thing that makes sense. And God knows that. And so God's the one saying, don't worship anything else. It's not good for you. So there's a lot of reasons to live right, but earning God's favor is not one of them. Somehow making ourselves right with Him is not one of them. You sort of, of can't even say that you are made right by faith. It, it, it's almost more like God has all, already made us right, and we, we believe that. So, so it's not like believing makes you right. It's not even that. It's, it's that God comes and says, I've made you right, and you believe Him when He says it. And that's definitely, probably getting too nitpicky um, at that level. But, um, but the bottom line is, start to finish, faith is what God asks from us. Period. And to drive it home, Paul quotes an Old Testament verse um, that in this passage is one of the few times I really don't like the New Living Translation. Um, uh, because verse 7 says, it's through faith that a righteous person has life. Um, and this is a terrible rendering of the Greek uh, word for life. And I 
hate to talk bad about the translation that we generally teach from here at Open Table, but in this verse I have to. Um, all of the word-for-word translations and most of the dynamic equivalents, if you don't know what that means and you want to know, email me. I'd love to talk about it, um, but not today. Um, uh, but in every single one of the, the word-for-word translations, they say that just live by faith. Um, so, so the difference is this. One says it's through faith that a righteous person has life, and the other one says the just shall live by faith. Um, and the reason the New Living Translations bugged me is because in the Greek word, there's two words for life um, here. And, and there actually, there's actually more, but there's two that come into play right here. One is zoe and one is zao. Um, zoe and zao. And they obviously come from the same root. You can see that, but they mean very different things. Um, the only reason this bugs me is because in every word-for-word translation, zoe is translated life. And by context, it usually means eternal life. I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. Um, and almost any reference to, to eternal life is, they use the word zoe. It's a noun life, and it usually means more than just living. It means eternal life, God-given life, divine life. Um, and then zao, on the other hand, is translated to live. Uh, always, it's a verb. Um, and it generally speaks of physical living. When a Roman... Uh, Centurion comes to Jesus and says, my daughter is sick, and Jesus gets tied up with a woman that's got an issue, and, and it slows him down, and the girl dies. Jesus tells him, don't worry, she will live. She will zow. It doesn't mean she's going to have eternal life. It just means she's not dead. She's alive. And so most of the time, zow is translated, it's, it's just to live, to be alive, to breathe, and, and, and do all the things. So zoe is life, the noun, the thing, the gift from God, the the eternal life, and zao is to live, to keep on breathing, to have a pulse, yada, yada, yada. And so uh, uh, the reason that this translation bugs me in the New Living is because the translators chose the English word life, which normally makes you think of zoe, um, eternal life, but the word Paul uses in the Greek is zao, to live. Um, the just shall live by faith. And here's why I think that's a big deal. We have this tendency to think faith is kind of a one-time event. Like you, you pray a prayer, you, 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 you have, we exercise faith, and in return we get life. We get the noun. We get eternal life. We get heaven. Um, it's, a, it's an exchange. And honestly, that, that's kind of what happens, but, but Paul actually says there's a, there's a much richer, fuller understanding. Paul says that the just, the righteous, in other words, those who have been saved by Jesus, those people live, zow, um, by faith. They live and breathe and move and exist and go to work and do dishes and interact with people and raise kids by faith. It's much bigger than just this exchange that happens that, that we get our get out of hell free card um, because we have faith one time. And it's, it's, it's saying my existence will now be by faith. What I do, why I do it, how it, it, it shapes my decisions, all of that will now include faith. I will live Zao by faith, um, which I think is a very big deal. Um, so we will live by faith. And honestly, Paul um, could have stopped there. He, he, this is, it's kind of funny. When you go through just the intro to chapter 1, he's got all three people of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, all there, very Trinitarian. Theology. He's established that Jesus is a descendant of David, so he's the Son of Man. Uh, he establishes he's the Son of God, proven through the resurrection. 
Um, he's clearly and bluntly stated the, the resurrection as a reality. He told us to accept all of that by faith. Basically, this is the rough outline of the creed we studied at the beginning of the year. Like most of the creedal elements are right here in his introduction to Romans. Um, he's got all three members of the Godhead. He's got their roles and, and functions. He's got the resurrection, how we apply that by faith. Um, he says, I preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is who Jesus was. Believe that and you're in. And honestly, as you share the gospel with your family and friends, I'd stick to that. You don't have to go, oh, but if you want to get saved, we've got a 20-week study through Romans to do. Like, no. Like, that's not, that's not what we, that's not what we, the rest of the book is mostly explaining what that means. Explaining what takes place there in the first half. And it's super edifying and it's good for us and I believe it's transformational. But you don't have to get to major in Romans to be saved. Um, but for us here at the end of this long study, I think it's important that we know Paul quotes the Old Testament saying that we, you and me, here in 2023, we need to live every single day, every breath, every step, everything we do, every decision, by faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like that should shape us and change us and transform us. This gospel that we've spent 20 weeks studying should make a difference. So here's what I'd like to do to close out this study. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, lift us up on, uh, on the mountain for a minute. Here's what I mean by that. Um, my seminary systematic theology teacher used this great metaphor for studying theology. Um, he said systematic theology is like looking at a, a kind of a wooded hiking path um, from a mountainous perspective, from up on a cliff somewhere, looking down at the, at the hiking path. You can, you can, when you stay on the overlook, you can see the entire valley. You can see how the path, you know, has to bridge this hill and then it winds down to the riverbed. You see how everything flows to the riverbed. You see, you see how everything ties together and, and makes a beautiful vista. Um, you can see the, the whole thing working together and making sense. Uh, but that's a very different look than actually hiking down that trail. Hiking down that trail, you might get on a hill and have no idea how long this hill is. This might go on forever and I might die. You don't realize you're about to crest it. You don't know that at the time. You might see where a fox killed a rabbit and it's, there's maggots in it and it's gross and you don't understand that part of the hike. You might see where a tree fell and, and blocked the path a little bit and there's some rot and some overgrowth. Like when you hike down the trail, it looks very different than when you're on the, the, uh, on the mountain looking at it. And some of us, when we do expositional study, um, we do get hung up in places. We're like, I don't even know if I like God in this chapter. Like, he's kind of, like, that's kind of tough. You know, we, and we hear things we don't understand, and it's confusing. And, and the beauty of theology is you can get up and go, oh, I see how it all fits together a little bit. And so that hike is more like expository study when we go verse by verse and we, we pick it apart and, and, and we do some hard work. And sometimes it can be ugly. Sometimes it can be hard to tell if it even makes sense or where it's going um, uh, or the, the, the very nature of the woods we're hiking in. And so my, my seminary professor would say um, the, the exposition is important, but you also need to be able to pull out every once in a while and make sure you keep in track of how it all fits together and what's going on. And I've been trying to do that through this study. Um, we've done a lot of review. We, we've tried to step out every once in a while and look at the over, overview. Um, from a more elevated height while we're also trying to walk through the path a little bit and dig in, you know, week by week. But what we're going to do this morning is like 
get on a drone and pull way up. We're going to look at the whole thing um, together kind of in one morning, kind of all at once. Anybody remember the Romans Road? Anybody that old? Anybody like, you don't have to raise your hand if you don't want to. Um, yeah, the Romans Road, for, for, for all of you younger people, it was a pamphlet that, that you could use to, to lead people to Christ and it walked you through the Romans in like three or four verses. It really wasn't much. But, um, and so you could lead them to faith, you know, uh, with the book of Romans. So that's kind of what we're going to do today. We're going to expound, we're going to do like an expounded Romans road, but, uh, but that's what we're going to do. So in chapter one, Paul explains how sin happens. He says the same thing three times, slightly different each time, but all three times he declares that humanity knew God, but chose not to worship him. They're without excuse because they know God, but choose not to worship him. So God stepped back. And, and, and it says he turned them over. He allowed them uh, to, to have their way. We knew God chose not to honor him. God gave us up. It reads like this. Since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do things that never should have been done. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, gossip. They're backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, boastful. They invent new ways of sinning and they disobey their parents. They refuse to understand, break their promises. They're heartless and have no mercy. They know God's justice requires that those who do such things deserve to die, yet they do them anyway. Worse yet, they encourage others to do them too. If you can't find yourself in that list, I'll loan you my reading glasses because you're in there. You're in there. Um, I think when I taught on this, I highlighted my favorite ones in the bunch. Um, I got a few in that list that I tend to love more than I should. That's all of us, and that's how sin happens. It's, it's that we know God. We choose not to honor him in the moment, and instead he's like, then, then he plays the gentleman and lets us have our way, which, which leads us into all levels of depravity. Um, so Paul uh, basically nails sinful people. Um, and just as you start to feel smug if you're raised in church, and you're like, you know, I've never really gone down that road. That's not me. Um, he, he sneaks into chapter 2. Uh, you may think you can condemn such people, but you are just as bad and you have no excuse. When you say uh, they are wicked and should be punished, you are condemning yourself. For, when, for you who judge others do the very same Things. Um, so Paul nails the church sinners. He's got the unchurched sinners in chapter 1. He nails the churched um, sinners in chapter 2. And just in case you like slip through the crack somehow, you threaded that needle, he gets you in chapter 3. For everyone has sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standard. Um, and so it's very clear that this is step 1 of the gospel message. You're a sinner. And I'll be honest, this is so much bigger um, than sometimes we give it credit for. You know, we almost always kind of use this reality perfunctorily. We just say, yeah, all, all sin and fall short of the glory of God. Like, like it's this pre-established reality. Yeah, nobody's perfect. You know, and we, and we kind of brush it off. Uh, and, and I think usually we say, we've all sinned, past tense. Yeah, everybody's blown it at some time. And I think that completely misses the point of what Paul is doing here. And if you miss that point, I don't know that anything else holds together the way it's supposed to. Paul is making it clear that we are helpless. Helpless. Wicked sinners, helpless. Righteous, judgmental people, and helpless. Anyone that he might have missed is helpless. 
And when we get that, when we really get that, it makes it harder to judge other people. It makes it way harder to look down on other people. It makes us more grateful. It makes us better worshipers when, when we truly understand that we bring nothing to the table. Anything we do bring to the table, it's, it's to benefit us. It's because it makes our lives better. It's a better way to live. It's better for, 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 it's better for our country. It's better for everything. Like when we live the way we should, when we raise our kids the way we should, when we have marriages the way we should, it's better for us. It's better for our country. There's a great benefit in it. But it does not give us merit before God. We are helpless. And only when we understand that we bring nothing to the table are we ready like when we get to Romans 12 and Paul's like, lay yourself down as a living sacrifice. What else would you do? In light of this, what else would you do other than just pour yourself out and go, my goodness, he gave everything for me. How could I not give everything for him? So much is dependent, uh, so much is dependent on getting that, that we can do nothing to make this whole thing work. The Father had to do everything. And we just believe that reality. Which is exactly what Paul turns to next. Uh-oh. What is happening now? Boy, I am just not doing good with the technology lately. I don't know. Oh, that might be the computer locking up. Well, this might get real fun. I can talk all day long if I don't have notes. I'm not plugged in anywhere, am I? Must be an important message because I've never had this happen before. Oh my goodness, now it caught up. Who knows where I am? Okay, so, so after establishing we're all sinners, chapters 1, 2, and 3, the wicked sinner, the righteous sinner, and everybody else, Paul turns to this. He says, yet, God in His grace freely makes us right in His sight. He did this through Jesus Christ when He freed us from the penalty of our sin, for God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed His life, shedding His blood. People are made right with God when they believe. And Paul tacks this on, for God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life for his blood. Can we boast then that we have done anything to be accepted by God? No. Because our acquittal is not based on obeying the law. It's based on faith. And Paul gives some examples of Old Testament people um, who were close to God by faith. And then Paul makes a statement that rocks my world every time I read it which is often, this is the chapter I probably spend more time than anything else. He says, therefore, since we've been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. And I think the church needs this so badly. I honestly think we have a tendency to feel like God kind of lets us in on a technicality um, and, and, and we're thrilled to get in and get to go to heaven so we don't complain, but, but living with God is kind of like living with a demanding, never satisfied dad. 
you know, who, who always wants more for us, is never quite happy. Like, a lot of us have, have uh, like, he's anxious to catch us doing something wrong so he can discipline us. And, and we feel like he's mostly disappointed in us um, for this or that. And, and as I said, you know, we express some gratitude because we're excited to get in. But on earth, we rarely experience peace with God. Like, peace with God, he, that he's on our side, that he's behind us, that, that when we fall, he's cheering us to get back up. He's not like, well, that was stupid of you. You know, he's not, he's not down on us. He's like, he's like, he's the one cheering us on. He's the one that, that wants us to do things that are going to be good for us. So Paul not only states boldly that we have peace with God, but he explains it by saying, if God went so crazy in love with you while you were his enemy, that he sent his own son for you, how much more crazy is he going to be about you now that you're in his family? He's like, now that you're one of his, he'll, there's no end to the grace he'll show you. And this is so essential to move forward because we're going to wrestle with some difficult stuff and it can be easy to think that, that those difficulties are coming from God's disappointment. When we get into the next couple of chapters, Paul's like, man, I can't even seem to do the things I want to do. And we can, we can easily in those struggles feel like the, the, the weight of that struggle is coming from God. And Paul's like, no, 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 that's not coming from God. You're at peace with God. That's your own heart saying, I want to do better and struggling to do it. That's not coming from disappointment from God. Well, that brings us to chapter 6. Um, and Paul gets really theological and starts to break down some of the actual realities of what's happening when we put our faith in Jesus. Um, and some of it's really important. He says, well, then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Since, uh, remember, he said, now that you're in the family, if, you're, if, if while you were an enemy, God showed you grace, how much more grace is there now that you're on the inside? So Paul says, well, should we just keep on sinning then so we can get that grace? All that you know, plethora of graces? Of course not. Since we've died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgetten, forget, forgotten that when we joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death? For we died and were buried with Christ in baptism. This is where Paul hits on two really important things. He not only explains how Jesus' death pays for our sins, but he introduces a new word that was really important um, in this study. First, Paul tells us exactly what's happening in baptism. Because God punishes every single sin, has to punish every single sin. Nobody gets away with anything. Every sin you commit, every sin that's been committed toward you, God will punish. He's just. And he has to punish it. We, we stepped into a contract when we were born as humans. God said, the day you eat of it, you will die. Period. The day you sin, you owe a death. Period. And what Paul is saying is that when we get baptized, we pay that debt. We die. He said, you are buried with Christ. He said, the day you sin, you owe a death. And when we put our faith in Jesus, like every sin will be punished. Either Jesus will take it, or you can take it if you want. But every sin will be punished. There is no sin that just gets through the, the sieve. Either you allow Jesus to take it for you, or you can take it for yourself. You can choose to, take, to, 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 to have that punishment. He says, when you believe, when you are baptized, you are taking that death. You are taking that burial. You're buried in the water so that your sin debt, that death you owe, is paid. 
We die in baptism with Christ and we raise again to newness of life. We raise from the water like Jesus raised from the dead. So the baptism is more than just a ritual. It's telling the story of what's happening when we put our faith in Christ. It's a way of stating that Christ, the, in Christ, the debt that we pay, the debt that we owe has been paid. We are square with the house. And Paul declares this to be a fact. He said, this is a fact. You died with Christ. And then he tells us to do something. Is that word we leaned into for, for quite a while. He told us to logizame that. To, to, it, it's, a, it's a Greek. He said um, in verse 11, you should also, um, so you also should consider, logizame, yourself to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Jesus Christ. This is a Greek accounting word. It means to square up the ledger on both sides. So Paul is like, this is the fact. You died, you owed a death, and now you've paid it. Square your reality to that. It's true. Now you, and it's different than faith. Faith is, is a trust. It's an all-in thing. Lagadzame is, is intellectual. It's going, I choose to believe that with my, with my head. Like, I choose to believe that's reality. This, is, this sets up a metaphor. This, this, this death thing sets up a metaphor that Paul's going to stick with for the next two chapters, actually. Paul um, starts to wrestle with sin and what to do with sin. He's made it clear that his, that his old nature was put to death at the beginning of chapter 6. It died in baptism. I should be free to obey God, but it's not turning out that way. Paul tells us, it, almost like it's a new revelation to him, that this dead body is still there. He says, I don't really understand myself. For what I want to do, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. What I hate. How weird is that? That I can both do something and hate it. But if I know that what I am doing is wrong, this shows that I do agree with God's law, that it's good. If I do something and I don't like it, it, it means there's a part of me that actually likes God's law. It's actually like, that's the way I want to live. That's the good life. That's what I really want. And that's something new in me. Like, why in the world, like, why in the world something that I used to love make me sick now? Like, that's so weird. So I'm not the one doing wrong. It's, it's something else in me. It's sin living in me. And this is where Paul makes the revelation that sin is a noun. We talked about this. It's not something we do as much as it's something in us. We do sinful things because we are full of sin. Jesus said the same thing to the religious leaders. It's not what you eat or touch or do that defiles you. What defiles you is what comes out of you. It's the rottenness inside of us that defiles us. And Paul wraps up the struggle with his sin with this final piece of dead body metaphor. He says, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? So the beginning of chapter 6, Paul says, my old, my old man died, buried in baptism. And man, I'm still dragging the body around. Who's going to deliver me from this dead body? And Paul thanks God that Jesus does it. But Paul does give a weird surrender that makes us uncomfortable. He says, so you see how it is. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law, but because of my sinful nature, I'm a slave to sin. It's this almost awful surrender that we don't fully get. Paul gives in and accepts that 
that he will sin until he's with Jesus and fully redeemed. Paul's reaction to this revelation, indicated by a therefore, one of those transitional Greek words, um, is, is the true revelation. Because the immediate next verse after this surrender goes like this. So, therefore, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And remember, the chapter breaks weren't there originally. So, so somehow, this struggle with sin and, and the fact that he keeps losing the struggle is what convinces Paul that he can't be condemned. In the original structure, it would have read like this. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law, but because of my sinful nature, I am a slave to sin. Therefore, there's no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And what I think is really happening here is Paul was realizing that he literally was never going to be able to bring merit before God. I think he had that, I know I can't get myself saved, but now that I'm in, I'm kind of expected to, to, to hold my end of the deal up. And he finally realizes, I can't even do that. I can't even, I can't even earn favor once I'm in. Nothing to earn God's favor. It, it can't get me saved. It can't get me sanctified. It was all going to take faith, which is exactly what he said in the beginning. From start, he says that from start to finish, it's faith. And that's what Paul is understanding here at the end of chapter 7. And then in chapter 8, he starts to talk about a reality that will carry through the rest of the book. And that is that the, the true work of salvation is a work of the Holy Spirit within us. He says, but you are not controlled by the sinful nature. You are controlled by the Spirit if you have the Spirit of the living God within you. We talked about this being that born-again experience. Everything else is intellectual. He's telling you what happened. He's telling you, and, and that's all theology. And you can read all that and know all that. Satan knows all that. That's very different than, than surrendering yourself to Jesus and being born again and having the Holy Spirit um, literally save you. It's a very real and experiential reality that the actual Holy Spirit lives in us. Jesus referred to it as being born again when he's talking to Nicodemus, being born from above. But this is where the realities of the gospel start to take hold in the everyday life of believers, changing us from the inside out. And in light of that reality, the Holy Spirit actually taking up residence in us, Paul hits us with that beautiful litmus test we talked about. He says, what shall we say about such wonderful things as these? What do we, say, what do we even do with that? In short, if you don't read the first chapter, the first eight chapters of Romans and just wonder at God's goodness, how can that be? Then you didn't come to the same conclusion Paul did. If you read the first eight chapters of Romans and you walk away feeling heavy, like there's so much to do, how do I do this? How do I hold this up? then you didn't get the conclusion Paul wanted you to get. Paul's like, when I got to the end of this, I was like, well, I don't even know what to say about that kind of goodness. I don't even know what to say about that kind of grace, about that kind of love. What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? Paul tells us what our response should be to all that gospel. It should be all that God would be so good. And Paul obviously goes to wrap up this chapter with that beautiful, often quoted passage 
I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, angels or demons, fears for today or worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. From here, Paul spends the next three chapters talking about God's sovereignty. And concludes with that verse that I asked everybody to memorize, especially when trying to contemplate what God does and and why He does it. He says, oh, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. How impossible is it for us to understand His decisions and His ways. And that's where the letter turns from the indicative part. What is true, what is reality to the imperative part. What we should do, how we should live in light of that. And at least for our next series, maybe even for longer after that, we're going to use some language that, that really comes from that, this transition between the indicative and the imperative parts of this book. Paul transitions it like this. Most of us are familiar with this. And so, dear brothers and sisters, so that means, therefore, in light of all of that goodness and all of that gospel, all that that God does for us and our, all He asks for us is to believe it. In light of all that, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all that He's done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice. The kind uh, He will find acceptable. This is the, truly the way to worship Him. Give yourself to Him. Don't copy the behaviors and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, what is good and pleasing and perfect. And the part that I think uh, is important to us, especially after we a study like this, is this. Don't copy the behaviors and customs of this world. Let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Paul tells us we do do something. We lay our lives down. We, we, we surrender ourselves to Him. This is, this is our hands. This is, this is putting action to the Gospel. This is, this is our response to it. We're going to call that our hands. What we do. And we spent several weeks talking about what that looks like. And Paul makes it clear that you don't do it because of a command or a law. We do it because it's, it's reasonable. We're being changed to be more like God, the gospel that internally changes us and prompts us to want to do more. And that change happens in our heart. We can't change our own heart. The prophet spoke of of us having a stony heart and God will give us a heart of flesh for our heart of stone. We've read Jeremiah several times where he says, I'm going to come and write my word on your heart. The, The heart is the part we can't... We don't even know. The Bible says the, the, the heart of man is wicked and beyond knowing. We don't even know our own motives half the time. We don't even know how selfish we are in some of the things we do. I mean, love is a great one. When we first fall in love with somebody, it has very little to do with that person. It's like, ooh, I feel good when I'm with you. I like the way you make me feel. You know, that's that infatuated love with you. It takes a long time before you're like, I want your happiness more than mine. None of us feel that going in. It's like, ooh, you make me feel good. I like that feeling. That, that's a pretty deep selfishness. I mean, and we don't even, and, and we'd never call it that. You know, it feels like love. Like, we call it love. But 
but we don't even know what's going on in our own hearts. We can't change our own hearts. So the heart is what the gospel changes. It's what the Holy Spirit changes. So, so we, we do with our hands because of a change that happens in our hearts. But Paul says there's a step even before that. Our heart change comes from somewhere. Paul says we allow God to transform us into a new person by changing the way we think. This is the head. Head, heart, and hands. We change what we think, allowing God to transform our hearts so that we can do with our hands. And this is why a study like this is so important. It starts with what we think. We need to put good information in our heads because that's how God transforms us. What we think, what we allow in, what we study, what we, what we put in our heads will eventually affect our hearts. I mean, that's how this whole thing started in chapter 1. He says, they knew God, but they chose not to worship Him as God. The head was right. They put other stuff in their heads and they drifted away and God let go. And, and the road back is the same way. We put the good information in. That changes our hearts. We study the gospel. We, we read the gospel. We, we hang on to the gospel. And that changes our hearts and then that will start to change our hands. And I believe that, that happens the way Paul says it does back at the beginning. The good news tells us how God makes us right in His sight. This is accomplished from start to finish by faith. We study the Word of God so that we can believe the Word of God. And in that simple act of believing, that simple act of faith, God changes us. He changes us. So my encouragement is to actually believe what we've learned. Because the Gospel operates on faith alone. So how do we respond to this? Paul literally changed everything in his life upon confronting this gospel. It turned his world upside down. He opens by saying, this letter is from Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ, chosen by God to be an apostle, sent to preach the good news. And he tells us it turned everything upside down. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The power of God is salvation to all who believe. This message, he, he changed his friends, he changed his job, he changed his whole outlook. Like this changed everything in Paul's life, this message. Last night, or when I told the Levi Montana story, it was fun to see the shock in their faces and know most people, most people don't get it. That we got married in four months and, and I totally understand that. But I also know that we did get it. And that's the part I don't know how to explain to people. Like, God was doing more than just putting us together. There's a lot of things going on that God was doing. And, and if you were inside of it, it made perfect sense. It made perfect sense to change everything, to literally bend our lives around what God was doing. I went from being on a football scholarship, pre-med, to enrolled in Bible college over the course of a summer, going, I want to be a pastor someday. Like everything had changed because of this message. Most people didn't get Paul's conversion. But he knew. He knew this changed everything. This message changed everything. So he left his job, his friends, his calling. Jesus told, told a parable. He said, uh, there's a guy who, who sold pearls 
And one day walking through a field, he found a, the pearl, the pearl of great price. He sold everything he had. And he bought the whole field so that he could have that pearl. Turned everything upside down. This letter, Paul, talking to this church he had never met, wanting to make sure they understood the gospel. This is that pearl. This message is that pearl. It turned our world upside down. And I think it's turned our world upside multiple times. Every time our world goes nuts, it's a revival of this message that brings it back. It's happened before, and we need it to happen again. We need the gospel more than ever. So the way that I'd love to respond to this message is, is to ask, have we given the message of Jesus Christ the way it deserves? Have we wrestled with it? Have, have you asked God how His message changes things in your life? Has it confronted the, what's going on in your life? Have you asked yourself if, if, what it means to give your heart to the Gospel? What it should change in your priorities? What it should change in, 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 in who you love and how you love them? And, and have you, is this just the, the, the social club that, that works for you? Or have you surrendered everything to Him? This message changed everything in our world. And I think it still can. And I think it still does. But I think it starts with changing everything in us. So as we go to the table this morning, uh, do, a heart, do, a, do a heart search. Do, dig in and ask God, what am I supposed to do with this message? What am I supposed to do with this gospel message?